Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. If you've had some contact with the philosophy of Immanuel Kant, there's a good chance you found it abstract, heady, and hard to understand. But my guests would say that it's full of rich, usable insights on how to become better people. And fortunately for us, she's got a true knack for making Kant's wisdom really accessible. Karen Storr is a professor of philosophy and the author of Choosing Freedom, a Kantian Guide to Life. Today on the show, she brings Kant's ethical system and categorical imperative down to earth and shares how it can be applied to our everyday lives. We discuss Kant's belief in our great moral potential and duty to improve ourselves and how his insights can help us make right choices. Karen explains Kant's ideas on the difference between negative and positive freedom, the importance of treating people as ends and not just means, the tension between love and respect, why ingratitude could be considered a satanic vice, how practicing manners can make us better people, and more. You can't miss this episode. Sorry, I had to do that. Out of the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash Kant. All right, Karen Storr, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you are a professor of philosophy who has written and researched a lot about the Prussian philosopher Immanuel Kant. And you wrote a book about his philosophy called Choosing Freedom, A Kantian Guide to Life, which is, it's a very reader-friendly introduction to Kant's ethics. Because I think if you took a college ethics course, you definitely covered Kant. But you probably, like me, found Kant to be you know, kind of abstract and hard to understand. But you did a really good job of making his ethical system you know, really accessible. So if people aren't familiar with Kant, why do you think this philosopher of the 18th century is still relevant today in the 21st? Yeah. So I think Kant gives us an incredibly powerful ethical theory that's capable of illuminating all kinds of human problems that are still very important to us and also giving us guidance on how to maybe think about solving them. And that's because his theory has these robust concepts like things like autonomy and respect and dignity and equality. And he has really useful things to say about all of those. And why do you think, I mean, in my experience, it's sort of the popular culture. I think stoicism gets a lot of play, maybe Aristotelian virtue ethics, Nietzsche. People like to talk about Nietzsche, but Kant gets overlooked. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, I think this is partly Kant's own fault. He's really hard to read. And I think for a lot of people, it can seem kind of dry or like disconnected from their lives in ways that Aristotle or the Stoics don't. But I think it isn't. I think that part of the problem is that 
there's a tendency to read sort of small bits of Kant's work, but we get a better sense of who he was and what he cared about if we read a wider array of things that he wrote. And once we do that, both sometimes the reading gets a little bit easier and we can kind of see what Kant was about in ways that we can't always by just focusing, for instance, on his famous groundwork. And how would you describe how Kantian ethics differs from other ethical systems, for example, like Aristotelian virtue ethics? Because I know that's something, that's another area of your expertise. Yeah, so I think Kant actually probably has more in common with both Aristotle and the Stoics than it might seem. He was actually very influenced, particularly by Stoicism. And he's often talking in ways where it's clear he's responding to the, to the ancients. So one of the hallmarks of Kant's theory is his emphasis on reason. That's something that is absolutely present in Aristotle and the Stoics too. Kant also emphasizes an ideal in ways that Aristotelians and Stoics do as well. In Kant's case, the ideal in question is what he calls a person with a good will. So there's many ways in which the structure of Kant's theory is very much in line with other sorts of ethical theories. But Kant's theory is also very modern in other ways. He's an Enlightenment philosopher, and this is reflected in the kinds of things that he cares about, focusing on things like individual rights, political liberty, problems about coercion and consent, religious tolerance. These are all problems that Kant saw in the world around him that he also wanted to solve. So it's it's a it's a different spin on ethical problems than you'd find in ancient philosophers, but there's, I think, actually more in common across them than there is that separates them. And what do you think uh, are the biggest misconceptions people have about Kant? Because as you said, he's hard to understand. He's hard to read sometimes. Um, So I can cause a lot of misconceptions. What are the biggest ones you've seen in your career? So I think probably the biggest one is that Kant only cares about us as rational beings, that he's uninterested in actual problems of actual human life. I think that's a common portrayal of Kant, but I think it's just false. And I think it's you can see that it's false if you sort of read into other things that he wrote. He had a lot to say about moral psychology and about sort of the complicated conditions of actual human lives. So that's probably the biggest There's also a tendency to treat Kant as very focused on individuals and not at all on communities. I think this is also a mistake. I think that he does actually have lots to say about how we live with other people in communities. And then I think the third one, and maybe this is the most damaging one of all for people who studied him at all in in school, is that thinking of Kant as being incredibly rigid and dogmatic about things, particularly people often think of him as someone who had an absolute prohibition on lying. And that actually, I think, is his views on lying are misunderstood. They're actually much more nuanced than people realize. But I think that all of those are not quite right. There's not that there's no truth to any of them, but they're an an oversimplification or kind of a character that the full picture of Kant's work is way more interesting, way more focused on how we make sense of the problems that we face as real, normal, frail, embodied human beings than people realize. Yeah, I had that last misconception. I've always thought of Kant as, you know, he's a deontological philosopher, which he is, it's about duty. But his idea of duty isn't like totally rigid and you have to stick, whatever, no matter what, here's this rule and you got to follow the rule. He is, like you said, Aristotelian. There's instances where you have to use some discretion and judgment to figure these things out. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's no question that Kantianism 
presents us with certain kinds of absolute prohibitions. So most people are familiar with trolley problems and maybe familiar with the version that says, hey, can you push the guy off the bridge in order to stop the trolley? Kant's answer to that is going to be like, no, that's just not a thing you can do. So there are some absolute sort of principles, but not really as many as people think. And they don't have quite the form that people think. He's not really trying to sort of create a rule book for us about how to live. Instead, he's trying to call our attention to certain sort of crucial features of us and the way we relate to other human beings that are going to kind of guide the way that we act. So you start off the book saying to understand Kant's ethical system, you have to understand his idea of human nature and I guess the telos of humans. You can say this about any philosopher. If you want to understand Aristotle, you have to understand what he thought humans were made for, their ends or even Nietzsche or whatever. So how did Kant view humans and what was his his telos, like you mentioned, like is that idea of like an ideal human is someone with goodwill. So flesh that out a little bit more for us. Yes. Oh, I love to do this um, because, of course, people do think rightly so of Aristotle as a theorist who's grounded in human nature. And people often don't think of Kant that way. But in fact, he is. And one of the things I find so interesting and actually quite appealing about Kant is that Kant thinks that sort of as a matter of human nature, we're basically pretty much a mess. You know, we're prone to all kinds of wickedness and frailties. We've got all these issues ourselves. But he also thinks we are capable of being so much more than we are. So there's a pretty big gap for Kant between sort of what human nature is like and what human beings are capable of being. So it's both like sort of pessimistic and optimistic at the same time, if that makes sense. But the point about the teleology and about sort of the direction of humanity, this is really controversial within Kant because it's kind of hard to know what how he was talking about it. But there's a general idea behind it that Kant thinks that we are oriented, both sort of naturally and actually sort of morally, we're drawn toward improvement in progress. And this is true of us as individuals and also true of us as communities of people. So Kant thought that progress is something we can do and that we're sort of oriented toward doing as a matter of nature. But it's also not just going to unfold on its own. We have to do things. We have to act to make sure that we are becoming better and that our communities are becoming better. And Kant's ethics is very much about how to take that action, how to become better, how to progress. No, and he even says, because we have that natural orientation to want to get better, he says we have a duty. That's one of our duties in life is to make ourselves better, primarily ethically, like become more moral people. Yes, absolutely. He does think it's a duty. So Kant sees us as sort of creatures who could sort of go either way. We have tendencies that take us in the direction of evil or at least failures of various kinds. But he also thinks we have the capacity to choose otherwise. And that capacity to choose what is right or what is good is for Kant what is so central about us. And on Kant's view, we do have a duty to do that and to make ourselves into the kind of people who will be better and who will make good choices and help move our communities toward better versions of what they are now. And so it is, that's like our main moral goal is to try to make some progress as best we can. I think people listening might have heard that metaphor that Kant made about our human nature. He called us crooked timber, basically. Yes. So our, in our job as, and we say carpenters of ourselves, is to make something beautiful out of this crooked timber we've been given. Yes, yes. To straighten ourselves out, basically, as best yeah. we can. Kant also recognizes that we are never going to fully succeed, at least not in this life, because it's just not possible. 
But we can always be trying. We can always be attempting to make something better out of the kind of mess that we are. And this is sort of the goal of our striving in many ways. But he's also really hopeful that we can do it. Like we're not fated to stay crooked in a sense. We can make ourselves better. We can straighten ourselves out. So a lot of ethicists, particularly Aristotelian virtue ethicists, they focus on the types of virtues people should develop to live a good life. And Kant does that too. We'll talk about some of that today. But you point out that Kant, he actually spends a lot of time talking about vices. And the language he uses about vices is really delicious. It's, you know, he calls things satanic and just, you know, just really great words. So why does Kant spend a lot of time focusing on vice in his work? So Kant does spend a lot of time on vice and even more than I realized, you know, I've read Kant's works more times than I can count. And it wasn't until sort of like until I was sort of far in that I realized how much of his discussions about us are framed in vice terms. So Kant, it's not that he doesn't care about virtue. He does care about virtue. He thinks of virtue as a kind of strength in doing what's right in the face of like obstacles and challenges of different kinds. So he recognizes that some of these obstacles are outside of us, but he also thinks a lot of them are inside of us. And the challenge is to sort of recognize the things that are getting in the way of our own moral progress. And vice is he talks about individual vices, and he also talks about vice as kind of a catch-all. But vice is a way of thinking about ourselves in relationship to other people that sort of warps our reasoning. At one point, he calls the vices monsters that we have to fight, which I think is funny language. But vices have a tendency to sort of block us from doing what we need to progress. And the reason why he emphasizes them so much, I think, is that he thinks that when it comes to being better, like sort of getting a grip on our vices and our character is probably the most of the battle. He doesn't think that the challenge necessarily is in figuring out what to do. I mean, so sometimes it is, of course, there are really difficult moral problems. But in many cases, the real problem is like getting ourselves to do the thing that we already know is right. And that's where the sort of fighting vice comes in. No, I think people can probably understand this. If you can just go through your life avoiding vice, you're probably gonna have a good life, right? If you just like follow the 10 commandments, don't kill people, don't lie, don't commit adultery, what else? Don't covet or whatever. You're probably gonna have a decent life. And then, you know, anything above that with that virtue, those strengths you develop is gonna be like icing on the cake. But if you know people who, you know, they lie, they're constantly, you know, philandering and they're constantly just worried about what other people have and they're comparing themselves, they're usually not having a great time. Right. Yeah. And they're also, I think, gonna be sort of thinking about things in the wrong way. So for for Kant, Vices often arise out of our sort of desire to put ourselves first in a variety of ways. It could be like put our own interests or, you know, desires above the desires and interests of others, or to kind of want to claim a sort of standing for ourselves that we're not willing to grant to others. We want to feel sometimes superior to people. Sometimes we tend to feel inferior to them. And so these are all ways that shape our interactions with the world. Like the person we feel entitled to stuff, we feel angry or resentful when we don't get our way. All of those for Con are types of vices and they block us from like living happily and having good friendships and all those things. But they also just interfere with our capacity to reason well, Kant thinks. So we're going to be getting the world wrong if we have vices. We're going to be getting our relationships wrong if we're vicious. And so 
for like it's like the first step is to like sort of know thyself and as best one can try to rid oneself of the vices to which we're prone. All right, start straightening that crooked timber. Yes. Uh, okay, so let's dig into his ethics a little bit more. Let's talk about his famous categorical imperative. This is a really complex nuance. It took you several chapters to walk people through this. So I think we probably dedicate a whole podcast to this, but what is the categorical imperative and how does this help us achieve more freedom in our lives? Yes. So this is really very much the heart of what Kant is about in many ways. Although in the book, I also say that I think sometimes the focus on the categorical imperative can distract us from other things that Kant wants to do, but it's definitely central. So let me just start quickly with the idea of freedom. So Kant has this interesting view. I mean, he's lots to say about freedom, but he thinks of freedom in a couple of different ways. One way is in terms of what he calls negative freedom. Negative freedom is basically not being determined by anything else. And Kant interestingly thinks we can't actually know for sure whether or not we're free. We don't really know. Maybe the world is really determined. Maybe we don't really have an ability to make choices. But he thinks that we can't help but think of ourselves as being free because when from sort of the inside or what philosophers might call a deliberative perspective, we have to think of ourselves as capable of making choices, that we can't just think of ourselves as something that's pulled along by fate or by nature in some way. So we have to think of ourselves as capable of making choices. But for Kant, there's another kind of freedom that matters more in some ways, which is about using that freedom to choose well. Because We all know that it's possible to to choose badly because we all do it all the time. You know, if we think about, you know, look at the world around us and we see people as choosing, you know, making bad choices, but they're choosing them sometimes because they're caught up in their desires for things like money or power or whatever it is. And those desires can take hold of us in a way. So this is really well exemplified in, you know, like the Lord of the Rings, like the desire for the one ring, you know, people become almost enslaved by their own desires, their own themselves in a way. And this is an old idea because it goes back to Plato's Republic, actually where that idea of the ring comes from, where Plato makes this really interesting claim that the life of a tyrant is like the worst possible life because the tyrant is like the most enslaved person of all. So Kant's idea of freedom, and this is getting to the categorical imperative, but his idea of freedom is kind of in the same vein. This idea that I have this power of choice, but I can use it well or badly. To use it badly is to use it in ways that don't really reflect my nature and my capacities as a rational being. And so one of the ways we can see this is like when we all procrastinate, which of course everybody does. So like when you procrastinate, It's a strange phenomenon because in some sense you are choosing, like you're doing, you're sitting there on the couch playing video games or something instead of exercising or doing your work or sleeping. And no one's making you do this. No one's holding a gun to your head, but you're still doing it. And Kant would say that there's a sense in which that's free, but also a sense in which it's not. Because to be free in this, what Kant calls a positive sense, is to use your reason well, to choose wisely. And sometimes that's going to mean constraining yourself. And to choose wisely is to choose and act on principles, this is Kant's view, that are rationally defensible in our own eyes and the eyes of others. And this is sort of the heart of the categorical imperative. Because Kant thinks that when we're exercising our positive freedom, when we're choosing well, he thinks that we are going to employ 
a principle of reasoning to which he gives this name, the categorical imperative. Okay, that's a great setup. Yeah, okay. so dig, let's dig into the categorical imperative. <laughs> All right, so the categorical imperative. The categorical imperative, Kant thinks, is basically a principle of common sense in many ways. It is, he thinks already how we, a good person thinks about their choices, but he has this sophisticated structure. So it's an imperative, and that means it's a, it's a command. But it's a command of reason, not a command that somebody else is giving us. And it's binding on us and binding on everyone, every rational being universally. And it doesn't depend on what we want or what we care about, but on how we sort of think about ourselves as rational beings. So there's a bunch of different formulas. Well, there's at least three formulations of it. The one that people are often know the most about is what's called the universal law formulation. So on this one, Kant says that we should always act on maxims that we can will to be a universal law. So what does that mean? Well, it's kind of like when people think, well, what if everybody did that? Or something like the golden rule. Although it's a little bit different for Kant because the idea here is that to act well is to act on principles that are kind of rationally defensible in a community of rational agents. So and by that, it's a kind of principle that you could will that other people also have as their own. So here's an example that I think makes this clear. It's not in Kant, but um, it's similar. Think about cutting in line. So not everybody has lines. Different cultures think differently about lining up. But in a culture that does use lines as a way of getting people to, to sort of behave fairly, when someone cuts in line because they just don't feel like standing in line, they're treating themselves as a kind of exception. Like, okay, I'm going to operate according to a rule that I don't want other people to operate by because if everybody cut in lines, there'd be no lines. So I want to act on a maxim or a principle. I'll cut to the front of the line when I don't feel like waiting that I don't want other people to act on. So I'm like making a rule for myself that puts me at the center of the universe in some sense, and not others. And Kant thinks that this is actually irrational because there's nothing about me that makes me so special that I get to cut to the front of the line. And so in doing this, I'm claiming a status for myself that I don't really have, that I'm like not everybody's equal. And Kant thinks this is irrational. And so that categorical imperative in that form serves as a kind of like check on us to be like, are we actually thinking of us as equal to everybody else here? And the categorical imperative is a way of sort of seeing when we're doing that and when we're not. Okay, I like the example of cutting the line. I think that really does explain it. And I think you've probably seen this in other areas of our life on a day-to-day basis. Whenever you think, why well, I'm the exception, here, Kant would say, well, maybe not. Because as you said, it not only are you put yourself in a position of like as the center of the universe, which he thinks is irrational and it's going to hurt the community, but it's also in the end, it could end up hurting you. If everyone decided to follow that exception that you want to make for yourself, then it's probably going to hurt you eventually, right? If you decide, well, if everyone could just cut in line, well, then when you need to get something, you're probably not going to be able to get it because it's just chaos and you're, you end up hurting yourself eventually. Yeah, you're frustrating your own purposes, which is irrational on Kant's view. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. 
Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of no in a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash AOM. Masterclass.com slash AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. 
That's meetfabric.com slash manliness, M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. And now back to the show. So that's one formulation of the categorical imperative. Talk about uh, another one. Yeah, so the other, a second formulation is what's usually called the humanity formulation. And this one, and Kant thinks these are all equivalent, but the hum, they're different ways of saying the same thing. The humanity formulation tells us that we always have to act in a way that treats humanity in ourselves and in other people as an end in itself and never as a mere means. And so this is often sort of spelled out in terms of treating ourselves and others as having dignity and respecting that dignity. And there's all kinds of implications of this principle. That principle is actually the one that Kant uses more often and one that often shows up most in discussions about Kant's ethics. So the universal law formulation is more famous in many ways, but the humanity formulation is one that actually gets used a lot. Well, let's talk about the humanity formulation, because I think, as you said, this this shows up in all parts of our life. And I, that's why I think it makes it such a, a useful and powerful idea. So let's talk about treating people as ends and not just means. So what are some examples of us treating people as ends and then also examples of treating people as means? Yeah. So Kant thinks of it, sort of the most foundational part of it is actually sort of not treating people as what he calls a mere means. And so this is, there's a common sense equivalent to this that we're all familiar with, this idea of just like using people, seeing them as objects that you can manipulate for your own purposes, however noble your purposes are, but to see them as things in the world that you can use, that are free for you to use. So back to the trolley, problem, you know, you're pushing the guy off the bridge to stop the trolley, you're using him as a mere means to stop the trolley. And on Khan's view, you don't have, you're not entitled to do that because that's not treating him as having dignity. So to, to make sure that we don't treat people as a mere means, that's a way of sort of setting, we might describe as boundaries around the kinds of things that we can do to other human beings. And so it's going to rule out killing them understandably. It's also going to rule out trying to coerce them or manipulate them in a variety of ways. It's going to rule out trying to thwart or get around the reason. This is why Kant thinks it's wrong to lie to people for the most part, because you're trying to manipulate their way of understanding the world. So those are all going to serve as sort of foundational constraints on how we behave toward people and ourselves, because he thinks this applies to us. But Kant says there's also other things that we need to do in order to treat people in a fully respectful way and to really respect their dignity. And for Kant, he describes that as treating them in his technical language as setters of ends or of people who have projects and interests of their own. And for Kant, this plays out in a duty to sort of help people with their projects. So in a practical example, let's suppose that you're you know, driving home from work and you see somebody stopped on the side of the road with a flat tire. You have a couple of choices here. One choice would be like, I think I'll try to like run them down. So that would obviously be a violation of their dignity, treating them as a mere means. But it's not just that because you might think, huh, maybe I should stop and help them. And to stop and help them is to respect them in a somewhat different way, but also really important to respect them as someone who, you know, needs to get home, who has a flat tire and could use a hand. And Kant thinks both of those are part of treating people with dignity. 
And this can get tricky uh, when you're trying to figure out, suss out treating people as mere means and treating them as an end, because oftentimes our roles in society, particularly in the marketplace, we are presenting ourselves as means, right? Like a carpenter is there to fix people's stuff, right? Or you're a professor, so your means is, you know, people go to you to, to learn things. What would Kant say, how do you figure out, like, you know, when you've, you've crossed the line where you're, just, you're using someone as a means, but then it's just, you're treating them just as a means and not as an end? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it is really hard to figure out where the line is because sometimes it's kind of fuzzy. Like there's some really clear cases of treating someone as a mere means where you're like, yeah, you're really just using that person. You're seeing them as nothing more than a way to get what you want. And, but sometimes we're doing things like you describe, like, you know, you, you have a project in your house you need done. You need to hire a plumber or a carpenter or someone because you don't have those skills. So is that treating them as a mere means? Like that would be weird if that were true. And Khan says, no, what matters is whether you're treating them like as just a way of fixing your leaking pipes, or are you also treating them as a being with dignity. And some of this is going to play out on like, are you going to actually pay the bill when they send it to you? Are you going to treat them respectfully when they come into your house, treat them as like a person who is not just a plumber, but who has, you know, ends and desires and projects of their own. And so it's subtle and, but kind of things really, really important. And I think we often feel the difference. I think anyone who has ever worked in minimum wage jobs understands the difference between a customer who actually respects you as a person and a customer who is just treating you like you're nothing. And it's that difference that I think Kant is really after when he's talking about treating people as a mere means and treating them as a means, but also as an end. And this can even fuzz you with friendships. I think maybe some people have encountered this with their friend or maybe like they have like a longtime friend they haven't heard from a long time. Like, hey, let's connect. You're like, oh, great. This great friend I had from high school wants to talk to me. And you get together and then he like springs a multi-level marketing pitch on you. And you're like, oh my gosh, I just got used. Like, I just feel, I feel gross. Yeah, that is a common situation. Yeah, this idea, like what's going on there? So one way of explaining it in Kantian terms is to say that your friend who has turned your, you know, your, your hanging out, your dinner together into a marketing pitch is like almost changed the terms on your relationship unilaterally. So they're like, okay, I'm making this friendship into a business relationship. And a business relationship is an entirely different kind of thing, of course. And so when your friend just does this to you, like, I'm going to stop treating you as a friend right now. I'm going to treat you as a possible, you know, business contact here. You feel like, wait a second, my friend doesn't really value me as a friend. They're just seeing me as a way to make money. And so that's a perfectly reasonable way to respond to that because your friend has just changed your relationship in ways that you haven't signed on to. And because of that, you can't really function as friends there if every dinner is turning into a sales pitch of some kind. You're not really friends. You're unwilling business partners. So that would be treating someone as a, mean, a mere means. And this fuzziness, can it gets even more complicated and complex in marriage. So here's an example that I've seen play out. Wife doesn't like how disciplined her husband is. She thinks he's you know too rigid, too inflexible, can't be spontaneous, et cetera. But this guy's discipline, it's what allows him to be successful at work. It's something that helps him grow in his own telos. And, and the, the wife even says, like, I appreciate that about him. Like, he's, he's great. I love it. It helps our marriage. He, he gets stuff done around the house. It allows us to, allows him to provide for our family. But that rigidity just still bugs her. And uh, she wants him to change. And she frames it the way, like, well, you need to loosen up for your own good. 
but really it's for her. So she's not really thinking about what's good for his end. She's more seeing him as a means to her happiness. So how to figure out how to treat someone as an end, as having their own telos in a marriage, that can get hard to suss out as well. Very hard. Yeah. Because when we're in close relationships with people, there's lots of opportunities to do this behavior. You know, everybody in a you know, long-term friendship or relationship or marriage, right, finds themselves in situations where they have all these very human frustrations and annoyances. And the hard part in all of these cases is remembering how much you love and value this person and that they are not yours to change or alter in any way. And, and trying to sort of separate out in some ways what I want this person to be for my sake from who they are and who they want themselves to be. This is so difficult, but it it makes all the difference for Kant in whether you are really valuing them as an end in the way that he says we must, or just valuing them as, you know, something useful to you. And what does Kant say? What do you do when there's people in our lives where they, they present themselves merely as a means, right? Like that's it. Like they're, I'm, I'm thinking maybe an influencer, that shares all of their details of their private life and they monetize it. And it just seems like everything they do is, is it's not really, an, like it's, it's, there's no dignity in it. They're just trying to get money or whatever. Does Kant still say like, you have a duty to still treat that person who's treating themselves as merely a, as a means, as an end? Yeah, you do. So one of my favorite parts of Kant's ethics is that he has this really big and important place for self-respect. Because the humanity formulation, all of those requirements that you treat others with dignity applies to you too. You have to treat yourself with respect and you have to ensure that others treat you with respect. And being able to treat yourself with respect means sort of knowing your true value and living in accordance with it. So there are lots of ways in which this can go wrong. And in many cases, it's not something the person could have controlled and we wouldn't necessarily blame them for it because sometimes the reasons why people don't have self-respect have to do with factors outside of them about the way that their family members treated them or society has treated them. But Kant thinks there is a duty to act in a self-respecting way. And there's a duty to treat others respectfully, even if they're not treating themselves respectfully. So Kant thinks that this vice of like not treating yourself with enough self-respect is a vice for Kant. He calls it servility. So the servile person either doesn't know their own value or they don't really claim their own value. And interestingly, Kant thinks that arrogance is like sort of the flip side of servility. It's also a failure of self-respect because both the arrogant person and the servile person are making mistakes about the source of their own value. So that influencer, right, who really thinks like, okay, my value is caught up in, you know, what kind of following I have or who advertises on my site or all of that. They think that their worth is based on that. And so if they're doing really well, they might be prone toward arrogance, thinking they're better than people because they have influence that others don't. Or they might be servile. They might think that they're worth less than others. And Kant says both of these are wrong, right? Because what gives you value, what gives you your dignity is something that you have and nobody can take away from you. And how many likes you have or how many followers you have is irrelevant to it. So self-respect for Kant is about sort of understanding 
what our value is and interacting with people accordingly. Yeah. And he would even say in order for you to respect others, you have to respect yourself first. Like you have to understand that. He does. Right. Because you won't, if you're arrogant or servile, if your self-image is bound up in your followers and you regard others in the same way, you're going to be making mistakes in both directions. The only real way to act is to understand that the value that we have is the same value as everybody else has. You can't, you cannot wish away your dignity or, Correct. I don't know. You, you yeah, can't right. lose it or waive it. It is something that you possess always, but we don't always live up to it. We don't always treat others in accordance with the value they actually have. And we don't always act ourselves in ways that accord with that value. So you mentioned this idea of respect. One of the more, I think, really useful sections in your book was uh, talking about the difference between love and respect. And Kant says these are two moral forces in our lives that pull us in opposite directions. Let's talk about this. Like, What did Kant mean by love and respect? And then how does he think they pull us in opposite directions? Yeah, so this is one of my, another favorite part of Kant. So Kant calls love and respect these two sort of great moral forces, but he thinks they pull us in opposite directions. He says, love tells us to come closer to people and respect tells us to keep our distance. And so an example that I think makes this really clear, what he's getting at is what happens if you're, you know, you're walking around someplace and you see somebody in public, a stranger who's crying or who's really upset. And you don't know what to do because you're like, should I help them? You know, they, they seem to be really upset. Maybe there's something I can do, but you also worry that it's none of your business, that you might be invading their privacy. This is a great example of the tension that Kant thinks we can face between love and respect. And Kant thinks like both of those are right. Like it is good to want to help people in their troubles, but it is also really good to want to make sure that we're respecting their privacy and their boundaries. So there's a tension here, and it's just a tension in real human life. It's not one that we can do away with in some ways. So, yeah, it's not a problem we can easily solve, which kind of makes sense because that, like, leaping stranger is a real problem. What do we do? No, you probably encounter that with your friends. Maybe you hear that your friend is going through a hard time. Maybe they lost their job, they're getting a divorce. The love part is like, I want to reach out to them and help them out. But the respect is like, well, maybe that's going to make him feel less than, or maybe he just wants his privacy during this time. And you never know what to do. Does Kant have any advice on how to figure that out? Does he have like a rule that we can follow to know when we lean on love or lean on respect? No, sadly, no. Um, I'm not sure anyone does. But there's a lot of value to identifying what's important here. So I think one of the things I like about this, this idea of attention is that we recognize that both matter. Because sometimes love for people can make us overstep boundaries. Like maybe, you know, someone is in pain and we just want their pain to stop because we care about them, but also because it's bothering us, right? And so sometimes it becomes more about us than about them helping does or giving advice. Or sometimes, you know, are like, oh no, no, I don't want to like get in the way. It's just like us being lazy or selfish too, that we're not really moved enough by love. So I think that a Kantian answer or really any answer is got to be sensitive to things like context or relationships or like your capacities. Like, can you actually help? You know, is the person like about to go into a job interview? Um, you know, are they acting like they're trying to pull themselves together, in which case maybe you should leave them alone and let them like pull themselves together. So there's got to be some space for judgment in this case. Like, what could I really do here? What would really be helpful here that wouldn't be overly intrusive? And I think that answer is going to change depending on what circumstances you face. And so a lot of it is going to be trying to get this right, trying to 
be caring and considerate without overstepping what Kant thinks are morally significant boundaries between ourselves and other people. So it sounds like you have to use some Aristotelian phronesis, some practical wisdom to figure this stuff out. Yeah, I think everybody needs it. It needs Aristotelian (laughs) practical wisdom. No one can sort of do without it because it really is about understanding what is at stake in the situation that you're facing and figuring out how to act accordingly in accordance with what really matters there. Continuing on this idea of love and respect, Kant has a lot to say about contempt. And I've heard contemptibility described as a state of being both unlikable, so like maybe you just have a good, you know, it's a really rough personality, and incompetent, right? So skill-wise, you're not good at anything. And so contemptible people, like they're hard to either love or respect. But Kant says contempt is one of those vices we really, really need to avoid. Why is that? And then did he offer any advice on loving and respecting people who are unlovable and unrespectable. Yeah, he has a lot to say about this. In fact, I sometimes kind of wonder if Kant struggled with this himself. At one point, he's like, it's really hard sometimes not to hold people in contempt, but we can't. Because contempt, he thinks he thinks it's a vice, but he also thinks it violates a duty that we owe to people. And the duty in question is to sort of recognize them as being capable of something more. So To hold someone in contempt on Kant's view, and there's different ways of thinking about contempt, is basically to see them as sort of beneath us in a way that means like they're they're worthless in a way that makes them not even part of a human community. And Kant thinks that is never true of any of us. No matter what you have done, how horrible a person you are, you can never like give up or waive your right to be a member of the moral community. So we owe it to people to treat them with at least basic respect. So this this is compatible with still like, you know, punishing people and putting them in jail and being mad at them. It doesn't mean that we can't do those things. But I think it's nicely encompassed when we think of like telling someone like that they need to do better. Like, so this idea do better suggests that A, you're not doing as well as you could, but also that you could really do better that you acknowledge that the person is capable of more. They're not hopeless. They're not worthless. They're not stupid. They might be acting that way, but they're not really that way, or at least they could be otherwise. And I think Kant thinks that this is the way in which we are morally required to see people and interact with them. And it's really hard sometimes But we must turn ourselves into the kind of people that are capable of seeing someone else's humanity. This idea is all over Martin Luther King's sermons in ways that are really beautiful, like the way that he sort of frames this. He has this wonderful sermon called Loving Your Enemies, where he's like, you know, (laughs) liking your enemies is impossible, but you can love your enemies because you're capable of seeing them as being something else. And I think that's very much what Khan is after with contempt and his insistence that we can't hold people in contempt. We must see them as capable of being better and we must hold them accountable for being better. And this could be tricky again, because this kind of goes back to the love and respect. Like, how do you know when you should step in and tell someone, hey, I think you could do better. And how do you do it in a way where it lands and you're not overstepping that boundary? Again, this can get hard. It can. Yeah. So, I mean, Kant thinks that in some sense, we can't 
make other people better. Because to make yourself better is to commit internally to being a better person. And like, I can't make you decide that you're going to have a goodwill and you can't do that to me because it's a, in some ways a personal choice. But that doesn't mean that we can't influence each other or that we can't tell people that they are failing in our expectations of them. And in fact, not doing that might be a failure of self-respect. So like insisting that people behave better is something that we're entitled to do. And that's partly because we get to require that other people do their part and perform their own duties and don't treat us badly. And so it's a way of holding other people accountable for being better than they are. And so I think Kant thinks of contempt is like just writing people off. And that's the thing that he thinks we must not do, however difficult it is. But it doesn't mean that like some ways are going to be more effective than others. You know, whether calling someone out on a moral failing is going to be useful or whether it's appropriate is going to depend a lot on what the failing is and what the context is. He thinks that friends have a duty to point out each other's flaws to each other. This is one of the things about friendship. But he also recognizes that it threatens respect because it makes it, it makes people feel like they're not respected. Their friend doesn't respect them and they get all worried about this. And so he clearly thinks it has to be done carefully. And yeah, I imagine you do some like introspection too. It's like, am I calling this friend out because it just makes me feel better? Because like, it makes them less than and me and the superior, like that self-conceit. Um, yes, or am I just exactly. doing this? Yeah. Like you got to comment say, don't do that. That's not good. But you have to do it where you actually, you're trying to help this person out. You're not trying to gratify some sort of uh, self-conceit. Yeah, that's a really important point because sometimes we are just doing it as a way of expressing our own superiority. Like, you're terrible. I'm great. Even if we don't put it in those terms, if that's what we're doing, then for Kant, that is actually vice. That's like me being smug or like self-righteous or something. And Kant thinks that we have no business doing that because, first of all, we have as many flaws as the next person does. And it's just a way of trying to, it's not really about them. It's more just, yeah, about making us feel good. Let's talk about gratitude. Kant had a lot to say about this. He called ingratitude a satanic vice. Why do you call it a satanic vice? Yeah. So I don't know if I know exactly why, but it's very interesting. But it shows how seriously he took it. So ingratitude, gratitude for Kant is a duty, and ingratitude is a vice of hatred. And the hatred is the part that makes it satanic. Because what we're hating, he thinks, when we're not being grateful is we're hating somebody else's expression of love or expression of care or concern. Now, sometimes when other people are helping, they're not really trying to help us. Like sometimes it's not really caring. And so setting those aside, but let's suppose someone really does try to do something kind and we're not grateful. Kant says that when we're hating that, and he recognizes that it's hard because nobody likes being dependent. Nobody likes having to rely on other people. But in being ungrateful, we are sort of rejecting somebody else's really good act. And that's what I think Kant means when he calls it satanic. That it's a rejection of something good, which is beneficence. So even if someone helps you and it's not very helpful, you should probably still thank them because they're trying to show love towards you. 
Yeah, probably. So with the caveat that sometimes when people are trying to be helpful, sometimes they really are trying and just failing, not through any fault of their own. But sometimes when they're trying to help, they may not actually be trying to help. They might be trying to impose their will on you or something. So, But if we're talking about cases where the person really is trying their best to help, even if it fails, it doesn't work, like they've tried to buy you a gift that they really think you will like and you just don't, then ingratitude is a vice. Because there, you're not marking out the value of the thing that they've done for you. Gotcha. And again, this can get tricky because you may be like, okay, well, even with the gift thing, will they give this because for me or was it to help sort of satisfy something in them, the giver? Yeah. This can get get, get tricky. Yeah. Kat has so many interesting things to say about beneficence. But if I'm doing something supposedly nice for someone else, but it's really just about me because I want to look good or like, I don't know, like I'm donating money, but I'm doing it for the tax break or, you know, for so I can get in somebody's brochure. That's the wrong reasons. And Kant would even say that's not even really an act of beneficence as he understands it. It's not fulfilling the duty. I'm just like doing it for my own purposes. So you should still do it. Like he doesn't want people not to give away money or help change flat tires. But beneficence for him is doing it for the right reasons because the other person is worth your effort. And if that's what's being expressed by the gift or the action, then Kant thinks that means the response of gratitude. So Kant also had a lot to say about good manners, which is kind of weird. Why, why would a, like a systematic philosopher talk about table manners? But he thought manners could help cultivate virtue in individuals and communities. And you've actually, you've written a lot about manners. So let's talk about why did Kant think good manners were an important part of our life? Yeah, so Kant seems to think that good manners matter for a couple of different reasons. One, he thinks that they will actually make us better in some sense. So he often says, and this is going to make him sound Aristotelian, like sort of Aristotle's sort of famous for saying, well, you become, you know, a generous person by doing generous actions on the long lines of you become a builder by building things. And Kant seems to go along with this. Like you become the kind of person who treats other people with respect by treating other people with respect. So there's that, like it helps us become better. But Kant, I think also has sort of a bigger role for manners in his life or what he calls the social graces. And that's because they help us kind of create a vision of a world that we should all be signing on to, even if it's a hard thing to live up to. So this is a sense in which we might think like it's a kind of pretending in some sense. He calls it a beautiful illusion. So you might be like, oh, well, this is just like deceptive or something. But I don't think Kant thinks it is because I think he thinks we all know what's going on. So One example I like to use is in the case of like sports games. And so sports have a lot of rules about how players have to interact with each other and with the referees and with the fans and all of that. And those rules impose certain kinds of behavioral norms in circumstances where it can just be hard to maintain those. So players are supposed to shake hands with each other, right? They're supposed to go along with what the ref says, whether or not they agree with it. There's all kinds of norms of behavior. And we have those in place because they create an environment in which people sort of remember that they're playing a game in some way, and they can still interact with each other as human beings. And I think Kant thinks it's crucial for us to remember in some sense what we as a community are about. And manners are a way of doing that, right? A society that doesn't care about those forms of social interactions is a society that doesn't really care about getting better in some way. And I think, too, manners help you develop the self-control necessary to create 
that society, right? To live a Kantian life requires us to sometimes refrain from doing things, requires self-control. And manners is like a tool we can use to help us strengthen that self-control muscle. Yes. Yeah. So if you're in a situation where there's someone that you really don't like, but you need to like shake hands with them and make small talk with them. And it's not like they're so evil that you shouldn't do this at all, that you should cut them, but you must. I'm kind of like, yeah, well you must. Right. And then this way of being like, I'm going to still interact with this person that I don't much like because it's good manners. That is, I think for Kant, a way of making ourselves better, constraining ourselves and doing it in the service of treating a person respectfully, even if we're not feeling it at the moment, it still matters because it's still a way of interacting with them on the terms that Kant thinks we should be interacting with them. Yeah, it helps us treat, again, people as a as an end, not merely as a means, right? So right. you do these sort of niceties with the barista, right, who's there to make you coffee, but you you say hello, you say, how was your day? Because you're doing that because it's a way to recognize I see you as an equal human being just like I am. right. Yeah. So, I mean, the Kant's like, yeah, this is really hard sometimes. Like sometimes it's just really hard to like not dislike or hate people, but we've got to get over that. And manners are a way in which we help ourselves get over it. And so I think he would say those conventions matter because they do kind of hold us into patterns of behavior that exemplify better relationships with each other, real respect. Even if we're not feeling it, the handshake, the conversation, the greeting, the barista is a way of exemplifying true respect. Well, Karen, this has been a great conversation. Uh, where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? Yes, yeah, so I have a website. I teach at Georgetown University and the philosophy department there has a website and I have a link to a page that says more about me and my reading. And the book is part of Oxford's Guides to the Good Life series. There are several books in this series, all of which on different figures that are also really fun to read about. So I encourage folks to keep reading in that series too. Fantastic. Well, Karen Storr, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Brett. It's been fun. My guest today was Karen Storr. She's the author of the book, Choosing Freedom, A Kantian Guide to Life. It's available on amazon.com. Check out our show notes at aom.is slash Kant, where you find links to resources where you delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIN Podcast, the Art of Manliness Podcast hosts guests from a wide range of fields so you can improve each and every area of your life. One week, we could be discussing fitness supplements, another, the philosophy of Immanuel Kant. If you enjoy the ever-fresh variety of the AWIN Podcast, consider taking a minute to leave the show a review. I greatly appreciate all the generous folks who do so. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AWIN Podcast, you could do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial, once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS, and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you to not listen to the AOM Podcast, but put what you've heard into action. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.